This year's Women in Treasury EMEA Forum delved deep into Treasury's progress around DEI and shared first-hand personal anecdotes on career progression from leading women in Treasury. Hello and welcome to this special podcast episode brought to you by the Treasury Today Group. I'm Sarah Rundell, and in this episode, we explore the highlights from our recent Women in Treasury Forum. Joining us on the day was Yang Zhu, Senior Vice President, Global Treasurer and Corporate Development at Kraft Heinz, Malcolm Grant, Chief of Treasury, International Organization for Migration, Amber Henderson-Smart, Global Head of Client Implementation, HSBC Global Liquidity and Cash Management, and Kelly Scott, Global Product Head for Sales Finance, Trade and Working Capital Solutions at JP Morgan Payments. Sophie Jackson, Joint Publisher and Head of Strategic Content at Treasury Today, began by asking Amber how relocating helped her rise up the Treasury ladder. I had this pull, for whatever reason, toward investment banking and very specifically mergers and acquisitions. So I decided to start looking at roles in banking and I was talking to a recruiter and he said to me, Amber, I've just had a financial crisis. You might want to think about transaction banking because this is the new cool place to be. So I thought, (laughs) yep, all right, let's give that a go. And very soon after, I got my first role at ANZ in Melbourne, Australia. And then, and then tell us a bit about like, what you noticed as you're coming up the ranks in Australia. You and I talk, spoke about, um, I guess, kind of the cultural shift that there is and how, how those banks are perceived externally. Like, I found it quite funny when you were telling me the stories about... Yeah, so, um, I mean, one of the reasons I, I moved from Australia to Hong Kong, and that's when I joined HSBC, was really looking at the opportunity and scope of responsibility that was available to me in Australia, and that was sort of what prompted me to move. And interestingly, when I moved to Hong Kong, um, you know, coming from ANZ, it's one of the big four banks in Australia. We feel very big and very special there. Um, <laughs> but coming to HSBC in Hong Kong, it was sort of like, who, ANZ, who's that? You know, you know what, what would you know? You know, sort of thing. So that was one of my challenges was, you know, sort of establishing credibility um, that I, you know, I do have some good experience. I do know what I'm talking about. Um, but that was one of my early challenges. Awesome. Thank you so much. Kelly, I want to come to you now. Um, when you told me the story about the beginning of your career, it sounded to me like the start of one of these like, legal thrillers by John Grisham. Um, <laughs> so tell us about you know, your kind of classic beginning and then how you moved away from law. So my, my classic beginning was, it probably was a bit of a thriller. I started out doing, um, at uni, I was doing pre-med. I was going to be a doctor. And for laughs and giggles, I decided to take a constitutional law class and I was absolutely hooked. The points of law, the analysis, the whole thing. So literally two years in, I pivoted to um, the law, and that's, that sort of started that trajectory. So fast forward a number of years, and I end up at Clifford Chance. At that time, this would have been 2001, Clifford Chance, top firm, biggest law firm at that time, you don't say no, so I skipped off to Clifford Chance, and then about two years later, in pursuit of the mad money that American (laughs) firms were paying, I went to White & Case. And so for 10 years, I happily did acquisition finance, I happily did asset finance, and all these, you know, massive transactions. So as you can imagine, the all-nighters, the weekends, Mm. the just absolute craziness. And then we all know what happened 2008, 2009, the world went pop, right? (laughs) 
And so for me, what happened was I wasn't as busy. And I thought, oh, I can raise my head above the parapet and reconnect with people I hadn't seen in ages. And oh, goodness, I have a three-year-old child, and I'm actually able to spend time with him now. And it was at that point I decided, I don't think I can go back to the crazy hours. And at that point in time, really, the only option for a lawyer who wanted more predictable hours was go in-house. But as you can imagine, at that time, there really wasn't a whole lot of demand for LBO lawyers. So I came across the role of JP Morgan for trade finance, and I was like, hmm, that involves letters of credit. I think I can figure it out. And so interviewed for the role, and kind of the rest is history. Awesome. And then what was the moment for you? I mean, it's quite unusual to transition the way you have, right? Um, what was the moment when you began to think, like, this is something I can do, and, and I want to do it? In terms of... In terms of moving away from the law into, into a totally different yeah, field. So, so then, you know, JP Morgan and you know, fantastic in terms of mobility. I worked out of Singapore, worked out of uh, New York, obviously here in London. But then I was looking for a different challenge in terms of my career and a different type of growth. And so it was probably in about 2018, I approached the then head of trade and said, oh, I'd like to move into the business. And he said, okay, well, what are you gonna do? And I was like, well, I haven't gotten that far, but I wanna move into the business. And he said, right, go off and write yourself a job spec. And that was the best advice ever because it forced me to really think about what's your skill set, what do you enjoy doing, and what value can you bring to the business. So I wrote my job spec, and I think what people have to realize is when you're moving into something new, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm. It takes some perseverance and some resilience, right? And so what happened next was 2019, the summer of, massive reorganization and realignment of the trade business. Mm. And that was where I got my opportunity, job spec in hand to say, hi, I'm Kelly Scott and I'd really love to move into the business and here's what I can bring to the table. And off of the basis of that, ultimately, I was able to step into my current role. Next, Sophie turned to Yang to share her story around how she has built and shaped her leadership style. It began, she explains, with finding the two key words that best describe her personality. For 10, 20 years, I couldn't find my, I don't know like who I stand for, my style, and many, many other things. So I'm trying to fit in, I'm trying to steal this person, trying to figure out how I should behave, should I carry myself. And until it was two, three years ago, so I'm very recent in the new territory, <laughs> two, three years ago, uh, we had a, uh, a training with a, with, a, with a professor and the professor bringing a piece of paper. And this piece of paper there are actually 100 words describing your leadership style. And the exercise was to circle 10, that described most of you, and then circle five, and circle two, and then circle one. Uh, and then there's massive confusion because you would wish like all the words would describe you, right? Like <laughs> I want to be this, you know, authoritative figure, like, a, you know, inspiration, whatever not. Uh, I realized I got stuck with two words. Uh, the one word it was responsible, uh, the other word is grateful. So then I realized this is me. Yeah. If I distill from the hundred words to the two, ultimately I got stuck with the two, this is truly uh, who I am and what I value, really my value sets are, and then I decided maybe as a self-discovery, this is how I'm gonna 
behave, yeah. this is gonna really practice. This is who I am, still this petite, very quiet person, but I'm highly responsible and very grateful. You know, it's just in general, I see the good things in people and, and I decided this, this is gonna be my badge going forward. Awesome, I love your answer because I think it takes time to be confident to be yourself at work. There's a lot of talk about being authentic, but like certainly when I started out, you don't know what kind of person you want to be at work. You don't want to be your whole self, like you're not going to come in, in your, you know, your normal social life. So it's, like, yeah, right? <laughs> Maybe some of you do, but uh, you know, it can be hard. And you, it takes time to get the confidence to, to believe that you will be accepted in, in that style. And I think trying on different hats and being inspired by different people can also be a way of protecting yourself as well as you learn what kind of leader you want to be. Um, on that note, Kelly, Kelly, tell us a little bit about what you learned as you kind of migrated across the business and, I mean, had to have quite a lot of conviction in yourself to put yourself forward like that. Like, what were some of the lessons you learned from that process that, that might be helpful for us all? And I think the, the real lesson is be brave and don't put limits on yourself. Because as a lawyer, as a recovering lawyer, <laughs> I've got it in my head that I'm terrible with numbers. I've got that somewhere along the line, maybe because I didn't do so well in maths anyway. And so when I was interviewing for my current position, my now manager, he said, oh, you'll be responsible for a P&L. And I was like, oh, I'm not good with numbers. <laughs> and he was like, well, you'll pick it up. And there are a few other things where I was like, oh, I'm not good with this. And he was like, you'll pick it up. He actually had more faith in me than I had in myself in terms of potential. But kind of going back to the, the numbers thing, I said, well, okay, you know, I'm got technical skills, I've got analytical skills, so what do I need to upskill on? And I definitely was like, right, upskill on the financials. Now I'm all over my p and I'm like <laughs> to our product control guys, where's this, where's that, what's that? But two years ago, if you'd asked me the difference between NII and NIR, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. So for me, it was a real learning, uh, you know, a real learning opportunity that you can do it. If it's something you want to do, you just find the right people, you reach out for help, because yeah. that is quite important, yeah. reaching out for help, and go to those, you know, those experts and say, this is something I'd like to learn. Malcolm, I want to come over to you. I mean, Megan mentioned at the beginning that for this year and last year as well, we decided to include um, male respondents within our study who answer their own set of questions. Because one of the kind of frustrations that I've come up against is that we're preaching to the choir if we're only speaking to a room full of women. Um, and it's really important that everybody sees that they have a role to play in this. It's not an us and them kind of activity. And there are lots of disadvantages that men face in the workplace. For example, parental leave, which is like grossly unfair and has been for a long time for them. Um, so so I wondered if you could share with the room why you decided to get involved with today's event and what it means to you to be part of this conversation. Well, thank you, Sophie. I'm really uh, honoured and privileged, I think, to be asked to participate in, the, in this event. I think we don't need to talk about equality as being a problem. We're beyond that. I think we, we are talking about um, next steps and how we can all work together and as an inclusive effort. Um, uh, I think about this, this, this TV thing they did a few weeks ago to combat sexism in women's sport. There's a lady soccer player kicking a ball around and she gets a sexist text. Uh, and the guys are all around her and they look at this and they say, this is not your problem, this is our problem. Uh, and I think we need to do that. But I'm here today because I'm inspired by the female colleagues in my team. I think uh, um, every day I come to the office, I look at them and what they're doing and their approach. And I think I've really got to be at the top of my game to match them. So if there are, uh, and I said, I think I said earlier that I think one of the challenges we have is, is there, you mentioned in the, in the introduction uh, earlier uh, that one of the numbers in, in the 
survey is plateauing and there yeah. is a risk of fatigue um, and a, a sort of leveling off of the efforts and we need to push it back to the top of the agenda. These issues that Kelly and Amber are mentioning about inclusivity and diversity strengthening teams is also very important so I believe in that but I, I know from my experience with my female colleagues some of the challenges they face and I know that what they've told me is, is representative of what's being experienced mm. everywhere to, to greater or less degree. Um, so there is more to do to change uh, attitudes, to change the way we think about um, team members and to change uh, how we support them. Um, you mentioned parental leave. In our organisation we have very generous parental leave which is applied to both uh, sets of, of the parents. Uh, and this isn't just about you know giving something back to the guys that the women have had, it's about making a clear statement that parental and family responsibilities should be seen as a shared responsibility, that, that women should not be placed in a position where they feel that they are the people that need to choose between a career and a family responsibilities. That's wrong. Sophie asked Malcolm to share his views on whether quotas help or hinder diversity. About 10 or 15 years ago, our organisation started to put in a vacancy notice that applications from female candidates were actively encouraged. And at that time, I think I scratched my head and wondered whether or not we were just sort of replacing one kind of, of um, uh, favouritism for another. And I've come on a bit of a journey then, and I think I've really come over to the view that if you don't tackle this issue, not just from the bottom up, yeah. but from the top down, if you don't take action to place or, or facilitate opportunities for women to, to get to the top, CEOs you mentioned, other, then there'll always be this problem about women and girls not seeing the role model they need. They yeah, always yeah. say, well, yeah, but it's mainly a guy's in. So you need this. I think it's very important. That's why I, I support now quotas and, and, and preferring kind of sensitive mechanisms to facilitate yeah. fast-tracking women into senior roles. Next, the conversation into building confidence in the workplace. Kelly, I want to come to you now. We spoke before about this kind of concept of being human or being allowed to be one's full self at work and, and what that really means in practice, because I think these are things that get banded around, but it's, it's kind of can be quite unclear. Yeah, I mean, I'd say for me, being human in the workplace is everyone acknowledging and celebrating that we're different. We're not going to speak the same way. It kind of comes back to Yang's point earlier. Yeah. We, we don't sound the same. We don't talk the same. We come from different experiences, different lived experiences, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so, you know, we're all amazing, complex, weird, wild, wonderful individuals. <laughs> Let's celebrate that. Yeah. And so every day, bring your full self to work, proudly to work, mm -hmm. without feeling that you need to somewhat hide in any way, shape, or form. But I also think another aspect to that is about being kind to yourself mm -hmm. as well as to others. Being kind to yourself is that, that self-limiting voice, that inner critic, get rid of it, yeah. put it aside. And every now and then it'll come up to the surface, put it aside, particularly when you make a mistake and you think, oh my gosh, I've gotten it wrong. We all make mistakes, but the important bit is how you respond to it. In respect to your colleagues, if you see someone who's struggling personally, professionally, reach out because I think you know some of the, the the best places I've ever worked at and I include JP Morgan in that is people reaching out to you the friendship you know the the support and really keeping the workplace mentally healthy because that's important 
Yeah, absolutely. And Amber, I want to come to you because we spoke a bit about this concept. It's, it's kind of the same conversation, but in different angles. And um, the concept of like what it's like to be the first person that's leading in a different way. If you're breaking the mold, how do you have the confidence to, to be yourself? It's the same conversation we were having. What, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I think for me, um, so I've been fortunate in my career to have some really good sponsors that have um, kind of advocated for my ability to lead and execute. But now, even in my, my latest role, I definitely have stakeholders where I can feel in my interactions they're sceptical on my ability um, or you know, my qualification to be doing what I'm doing yeah. because I look different to my predecessors or my peers. And um, you know, for many, you might think, okay, that, that alters your confidence, so I need to act more like someone else. But ultimately, you can't be different to who you are. You know, I think what Jan said, you know, really, end of the day, you are who you are, and I think you need to embrace your differences. And so um, one of the things that, in my recent appointment, I've had so many younger women reach out to me and just feel really energised by watching my journey. And they've said to me, like, you know, how do you have the confidence to go and, you know, you know, send an email out to so many people or address so many people, you know, because oh, I'm so worried about how I'm going to get analysed or, you know, whether I know what I'm doing. And they're holding themselves back from all these situations as a result. And I think for me, you know, again, I've been put in a situation where you've, you're thrown in, you've got to work it out as you go, but just be confident that what's different is, you know, what makes us better. And I think what makes you unique is the, is the value you bring to the table. So if you've been hired into a role, you're there for a reason be confident. And I think just to pick up on what Kelly was saying mm. around sort of that self-confidence or self-criticism, I don't think anyone analyzes um, more than you do yeah. on yourself, yeah. right? So we're having this conversation before, you know, sort of to say that, you know, if you think it's, you know, bad or not very good, or you didn't think you showed up the best of the meeting, I'm sure not many others are thinking the same. So just go for it, give it a go. Even if you mess it up, it'll be forgotten by everyone else probably within 48 hours. Panelists also talked about their biggest learnings regarding diversity and the ongoing challenges. Yang began. I deeply regretted when I was pregnant with my first child. I was ashamed. I was trying to hide my belly until I couldn't hide it anymore. Somehow in my head, I wasn't if, as effective as it could be. I was ashamed of the fact that I will have to take maternal leave. It's called, actually, it, for people who came from the US, you would know, it's called, even called uh, short-term disability. It's not a word. Maternity leave is not a word. It's short-term disability. And uh, <laughs> yes, it's also, you're laughing, but it's, it's a sad truth. And, and so I went back to the office uh, two weeks after. Uh, I was entirely volunteer. I could have stayed three months, even that was short. Yeah. I went back to the, and I still feel I was not as effective as a, as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, and as a worker. Should I do that completely differently now? Whenever I see a, a young lady, you know, expecting us to congratulate and make her feel that she can be at ease, because I was too focused on that two, three months of time span, I was thinking, well, I cannot be as effective, like 200% in my work. But honestly, life is too long. I mean, it's not only this two, three months, but I didn't know that. I wish I knew that. I wish I could have someone to talk about it. But if I enlarge the time span, I realize there's gonna be a time that I can be 200% to my work. There's gonna be a time that my parents will need me because I'm still the single child you know, policy in China, so they will need me. At that time, I will give my time to them. 
there was a time that I, I wish I could give more to my children, but over, over the lifetime, it evens out. So don't, don't, don't be too harsh on ourselves. You, early on, you said, be kind to yourself. Yeah. Don't over, be don't judge, judgmental to ourselves. Thank you. Kelly, anything you wish you'd done differently? Two things. So what Yang said really resonated when I returned to work after maternity leave. And I was just so scared that I'd lost my position as one of the go-to associates that I just did mad, mad hours. Yeah. And, you know, and probably spent an, a year and a half not being much of a mother, but just so focused on making sure that the partner still liked me and that I was getting all the good deals. And I wouldn't do that again, because at the end of the day, what was it all about? What's it for? Nothing. And the second thing I would do is harness the power of relationships a lot better. I used to think networking was a bit of a dirty word, and I was like, oh, I don't <laughs> want to call so-and-so for a coffee. And I'm looking over at Allison, because Allison kind of knows what I'm like, and I'm not. But it, it's, you know, decided, someone said to me, Kelly, don't look at it as networking. It's building relationships. Yeah. And you do that every single day. And I was like, oh, yes. And so if I could go back 15 years, I would have been so much better, rather than just sitting, doing all the work, and expecting to be noticed, because it doesn't always happen like that. So those are the two things I'd do differently. Amber, what about you? Um, I think for me, the, ma the main thing that comes to mind would be putting less pressure on myself, and particularly like post-promotion. So when I've been promoted, um, putting a huge amount of pressure on myself that I have to prove to everyone that's been skeptical that I actually am the right choice and I deserve my promotion. I remember a few promotions back being told, oh, you're, you're so lucky you got promoted because you're female, right? And just sort of almost sitting back thinking, I don't know what to say to that. But nice. that kind of, that experience has shaped how I am now to feeling like I need to prove everyone yeah. that I was the right choice. And that's meant I, it's taken away some of the uh, enjoyment or satisfaction I should have felt that I yeah. had got there to really celebrate myself or what have you. I was too busy worrying about proving that, yep, I was the right choice, it was the yeah. right decision. I hope you've enjoyed these extracts from our Women in Treasury Forum. Thank you, panellists Yang Zhu, Malcolm Grant, Kelly Scott and Amber Henderson-Smart. Don't forget to subscribe to the Treasury Today podcast channel to get further episodes in this series. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.